Michelle was <clears throat> talking about gratitude this afternoon. In one way or another, I know everyone in this room um, has experienced uh, this retreat. The deep kind of, of gratitude that she was expressing for what happens when you however you're practicing the body the the sense doors the abiding or the phrases and visualizations is a moment a powerful moment where we feel like we are receiving something and for 2600 years uh, this this lineage has been passed down from teacher to teacher. Mostly nuns and monks, sangha, ordained sangha. So when I or other students would express gratitude to Saira Upandita, he would say, well, then you need to express gratitude to my teacher. His teacher was Mahasi Saira, who uh, I was one of the last Western people to ordain with him in the early 80s. He was considered fully enlightened. And then if you have gratitude for Mahasi Saida, you have to have feel gratitude for his teacher, the Mingun Chetawan Saida. They're often named for the places or the monasteries where they're from. Mingun is near where Michelle and I teach um, in Sagain Hills across the Irrawaddy River from Mandalay. And then, then you have to go back a couple hundred years to that teacher's teacher's teacher, the Chelong Sayadaw, uh, also reputed to be fully enlightened, and so on, down the line. Uh, every year, thousands of nuns and monks and lay people gather from all over Burma after the rains retreat, and they chant this gratitude. Uh, after the after the um, rains retreat and after exams nuns and monks take um, it's a big affair and everyone tribal people as well come from far away in all their regalia and the chanting just wafts through the forest and all through the hills of the Sagain Hills um, and you can just feel the energy of it even if you couldn't understand it uh, of it going back to the time the teachings of the Buddha when he set this wheel of liberation in motion. So either at the beginning of, the ret- of a retreat or at a time where I see or feel um, the gratitude felt by the yogis, I mention that because then it helps us feel like we're recipients of this lineage and however it affects us, we pass it on knowingly or unknowingly to others. The word upeka means mental equipoise, balance, the serene, wide mind of peace and acceptance, equanimity. It has, um, it's the most subtle of the Brahma-viharas because it has the most wisdom in it. And were it not for the equanimity, it, it, um, equanimity is like the glue for the rest of them. It keeps them in balance from sliding into their near or far enemies. And uh, still, as we've been saying, any moment of any one of the Brahma-viharas lifts them all up. And this is just more like a ref- refined training to pay attention and know the, the, the differences between each one the fundamental ground of connection of metta and that authentic feeling tone of really a a sweet kind of care, pleasant sensation of compassion. Uh, When that ground of mind of metta, friendliness, touches dukkha of any kind, any kind of hurt, anguish, and when that ground of metta heart openness 
touches any kind of sukha, happiness, contentment. The response is this, you know, um, resonance, celebrating, feeling this gratitude, appreciation, awakening, reawakening joy in ourselves. So equanimity we could call the wisdom of of non-attachment, non-attachment because of its of its evenness, of the ability to see things without self-referencing them, identifying with them, other beings, mind states, sensations, places, people. It's because of the the um, the mental equipoise that that not only the Brahma Viharas but all emotions evolve and eventuate into a kind of deep knowing. An, ex- an example that helps us see emotion without the attachment and as impersonal. Uh, a friend of mine from West Africa, name is Maladoma Soma, uh, was um, born in this tribal village and taken as a very young child to be educated in, in Catholic institutes and ended up going to the Sorbonne and Oxford and, and uh, Harvard and you know, really had a, a lucky, profound kind of education. But then he, he realized he didn't really know who he was, his ancestry, his roots. So he went back uh, to Burkina Faso where he was from to the Dagara village. And the elders welcomed him back because he asked, you know, who am I and what is our lineage? Uh, and and they, they took him in. And he said it was a struggle at first because he, he had lost that connection. And in the evening, like about now, you know, he'd sit around with the elders, get receive their teachings, and he would turn up the lantern to see better. And the elders say, well, why are you turning up the lantern? And he'd say, well, so you can see better. And he said, um, you can't see very well when there's light. In the daytime, you don't really see what is. You see what you want to see. You need to dim the lights down so you can turn your attention inward into the silence into the dimness of, uh, away from the brightness of concept and into the softer, uh, dim candlelight where realities can be known, you know, in their own spiritual tradition. And then he talked about um, what he called the, um, the emoting of a village. Villages still today that are remote live very close together, like a family one big extended family. And uh, every so often, a woman or a man would come around the, the village well, center of the village, and, and act out some emotion or emotions, you know, of joy or of grief or of confusion or of anguish or happiness, whatever it was. They'd, they'd sing it or they'd yell it or they'd dance it or just show it. And all the village would turn out to witness it. And all the village would feel it as their own emotion. You know, an impersonal expression coming through one person that everyone would, would feel, evolve, transform them all into a deeper, know- deeper knowing. The felt experience being the emotion uh, of the whole village that they needed to know. So, like even when we're here, sometimes it's helpful to, when we have a strong emotion, it's, it's not unskillful to think it's coming from the person behind you, or in front of you, or next to you, because actually sometimes it is. You know, and so I use that example as a way to help us step back and just recognize emotions as these mental impulses and sensations, like like swells on the ocean, arising for conditions and passing away when the conditions are no longer there. 
to see them without the habit of self-referencing them, you know, of grabbing onto them. You know the difference now between metta as just metta, compassion is just that, and and joy, just is pure uplifting that doesn't have the feeling of of uh, self-possession. You know, there's no wanting to hold on to it, and when there is, you know, you notice the difference. You feel that tension in the heart and the body, uh, and then when the pure one returns, there's there's more there's wisdom about it. It sees it as it really is. So wisdom tells us that we can't alleviate everyone's dukkha. You know, some sometimes or even often, depending on what we do in life, we have a great deal of influence in creating conditions to alleviate someone's or some beings or some situations, dukkha, anguish, hurt, pain, suffering. But knowing we can't really control that and also knowing that we can't sustain everyone's sukha, their happiness, their peace, Conditions change, and and whether it's ourselves or another or beings, you know, all of a sudden they're experiencing something else. It may change back again, you know, but not necessarily, not at all because we wish, or not necessarily because of how we might help them. You know, we all know that about ourselves and others. Our lives are are filled with with change and and loss in the past. And now, and eventually, everything we cherish, our love, will change or disappear. The teaching is whatever is born dies, or whatever arises passes away. There's no exception in, in our bodies, in our minds, in the planet, in the solar system, in the universe. It's the way of the world. In the um, in the seventies, a group of us, about a dozen or so, uh, most many of whom are now uh, Western teachers that you all have heard of or know, um, we went to meet Mahasi Sayadaw. It was could only stay for a week in Burma at that time, and he's way in the north, and, and it was an extraordinary thing to meet him, and it was. Um, to be in the midst of this very remote village. He was in the middle of a Dhamma talk when, when we arrived. And um, there's all 12 of us, including uh, Chandra, who was two years old at the time. And he stopped his Dhamma talk and he asked the two or three hundred people in the hall to come look after us. You know, see to our welfare that we had a bath and refreshed and were fed. You know, and then we and then we met him, um, and spent a couple of few days there. You know, and developed these extraordinary friendships. The feeling tone I had was uh, of this sort of affirmation or confirmation of the power of deep faith in something, which I'll return to in a while. Our next trip was to Thailand. We went up to meet Ajahn Chah one of the great forest tradition monks has left his imprint um, also around the world in, in Western traditions. And we would sit around in the evening um, and he'd ask questions or he'd give Dhamma talks. And I think the subject of attachment came up. Um, and he used as an example, he picked up his uh, teacup. He said, this is my favorite teacup. You know, I cherish it, I like it very much. But I also know that inevitably it'll be lost or someone will knock it over, maybe myself or a young monk, or someone will think it's theirs. You know, so I know that would be suffering. So I, I regard it as already broken. And then I can really enjoy it, you know, without the fear that sometime I'm going to lose what I really like. So it's a combination of care and non-attachment, you know, which is 
the core teaching of all our practice and how we live our lives. The connection of care and yet non-attachment, non-grasping, non-identification with it. The cup's already broken, you know? In what some ways our lives are already broken. They seem to keep going for a while when we have food and good health and good weather and so forth, but we never know, you know, when, when we're going to be broken, whether it's a bad hip or bad back or broken heart. You know, so that attitude um, and that example shows the wisdom of non-attachment, which is equanimity, the wisdom of um, non-reactivity, which is equanimity. So why do we practice, you know, if everything we love, including ourselves and other beings, and will change, inevitably will change and be lost or pass away? It's good to ask ourselves again and again what our motivation is, what's our intention, what's our volition, because it will bring up all the hard questions we, we need to answer and know that will inspire us, you know, bring us to the cushion again and again and learn where and how to look in the body and in the emotional body and in the realm of thought formations and through the senses, understanding how the senses are receiving rather than living life as a continuous projection, naming and interpreting what we see and hear and feel or think. (coughs) So perhaps the first retreat, perhaps for some the first sitting, or after a couple of retreats, we start to realize that there's, there's more to life than our personality and more to being alive than the truth of life and death. Um, and at some point or another, we, we see the, the dual purposes of practice, the transformative part of practice, transformation. It really helps heal a lot of our fragmentation, splits inside, and bring a more of a coherence and healthiness and happiness to our lives and emotional lives. Uh, Brahma Vihara practices and uh, practices of generosity or gratitude, the non-harming, either restraining to harm or the, the forward active aspect of that, which is these Brahma Viharas, and mindfulness. We learn about ourselves and others through the, just the simplicity, either of engaged mindfulness in the world or the subtle pre-verbal, precognitive mindfulness at retreats. So we start to understand, and that's why people come back to retreats, because we leave and whatever process starts in a retreat doesn't particularly, usually does not end with the last spell and going out of here, might find it really difficult. Some people really find it difficult to leave the, the safety and protection and the canopy of stillness that was created by all of us of a, of a silent retreat and what's come up. Um, usually, if it's held properly, you know, we go through exactly what we're meant to go through in scale, in the time that we have, 10 days, 7 days, 3 days, whatever the length of the retreat is, seem, there seems to be a clear process, beginning, middle, and ending. Um, and it's the Dhamma that protects us. You know, so even though it might be difficult when we step out, we start to learn how to still engage some of the practice tools in daily life, with our thoughts and speech and actions. And then we come back. We might expect come back to work on a certain thing, but we're always surprised. You know, what we think we're going to continue working on has no bearing on what actually happens. It's really you know, awesome in that way, and you know, that's how we lower our expectations. The Dhamma brings up what we're meant to see or know and feel. So transformation is a genuine part of it, you know, and makes us better people. It heals our personality, makes us stronger and more flexible at the same time, more open, 
more accepting patient and so forth. But along with the transformation is, is a transcendence. Is that deep sense sometimes from uh, practice experience, insight, or powerful Brahma-vihara that seems, you know, beyond anything to do with personality, and beyond anything to do with the play of life, of phenomena arising and passing away, being born and dying, that this actually does lead to somewhere, the transcendent experience. Uh, uh, and what happens when we have insight beyond everything we know. You know, it pushes through intellect, pushes through everything we thought we knew about who we were. And each time we have a, such a powerful kind of insight like that, there's a little less clinging, you know, a little less holding on to anything, to our favorite cup, our favorite person, or what we think, you know, how we want our life to be. It's a little less expectation, a little less attachment, a little less identification, a little more sense of freedom, and a little more sense that this path does have a goal, you know, and and there's an intelligence to the stama. There's an intelligence to these Brahma Viharas that know much more than our thinking mind, our discursive mind. And we just begin to trust that and drop into that. Equanimity teaches us how to uh, navigate to the world. Um, Connected with equanimity, the Buddha taught about what he called, what we could call the way of the world. In In the Buddhist Pali language, loka, dhamma. And here dhamma means nature, or the way of things. And loka means world that we live in, our psychological, experiential world of the six senses, not the world out there. The only thing that's real is the world of our six senses. Everything else is the briars, the papancha, you know, the, way, the quail getting caught outside of his ancestral domain. All that we can know is what we can experience immediately <clears throat> through the the body-mind, six-sense doors, intuitive insight, awakening. Lokadama, pleasure, pain, gain, loss, uh, honor, dishonor, praise and blame. No matter who we are, if we're the Buddha or you know, Devadatta, the Buddha's cousin, who repeatedly was really very jealous and envious and several times tried to harm, did succeed in harming and tried to kill him. Everyone, and actually split the Sangha, you know, said everyone should be vegetarian and everyone should follow these sort of rules. And it was very alluring to a lot of people and pulled, so, so it said, the text 500 nuns and monks and um, you know that's why in the in the discipline it's taught that uh, any way of harming the sangha you know is is sort of a grave mistake to make karmic mistake but it doesn't matter in the terms of the way of the world the buddha was often blamed by many other teachers and people as well and and Devadatta, you know, because he allured so many nuns and monks, would be praised. Everyone is subject to that according to conditions, not according to what we want. And the pleasure and pain, we feel that every sitting or every walking or every standing, every day, every meal, we feel moments of pleasure and pain and start to get the message, well, this is the way of things, it's not my fault and I can't control it. And again, there's just a little less attachment when we see that. A little less holding on, expectation, trying to make things happen or get rid of things. <coughs> and everyone experiences moments of, or periods of, of honor and periods of dishonor in our lives, throughout our lives, from children onward. This is the way of the world. <coughs> 
and understanding it is comes from this balance of equanimity that that understands or begins to understand that it's not our fault and it's not within our control. It's all causes and conditions that arise moment to moment, why we experience what we experience through seeing, hearing, sensing, thinking. All we can influence is whether we react to Lokadama, way of the world, or respond with skillful wisdom, equanimity, non-attachment. That's what we have influence on. We have influence in the moment with wisdom. It's the light of wisdom that overcomes the darkness of delusion. That's the whole practice. It's the entire practice. Each moment we're trying to light up what's real and understand it. And to dispel the confusion, the darkness, the delusion, what we fabricate, the embellishment. To say again, the near enemy looks like equanimity, but it's not. You know, it's this indifference or dissociation or really an uncaring or insensitive quality of mind. It's a disconnect or numbing out. We know them because we've used them as, as, as defenses, survival strategies. And as we've been saying, we learn to respect, even bow, for these survival strategies, whatever they are, numbing out or anger, uh, intellectualization, all the ways we've survived, we feel gratitude. Even though those states now begin to feel worn and old and hurtful and weighty, we feel gratitude because they got us here. You know, how many people in your lives that you know closely would never come to a retreat. You know, and why is it that you're here and they're not, no matter what you say, how, much, how convincing you might be? You know, there's people in all our lives that, that we all know and we stay in touch with, but they just want to know if you're okay when you come back from a retreat. They don't want to hear, oh, you know, we do lifting, moving, placing, and we do this unconditional compassion, you know, and loving kindness, universal loving kindness that heals everything in the universe. They don't want to hear that. (laughs) And you don't want to tell them that, really. (laughs) So respecting those, um, those, uh, the resistance and um, defenses and so forth, we actually begin, they don't go away immediately, but we begin, begin to soften around them. They come and go. When they go, they're you know, one of the Brahma Viharas are there to replace them for a while. You know? And then they come back. You know, leaving here, it will be really clear to you. There will be ways you shut down unconsciously. And there will be ways, you, the equivalent of shutting down consciously. You know, with this cocoon or shield of fierce compassion, perhaps. Or equanimity in regard to what's seen and heard and felt and so forth. And then you close down again. And the awareness of that, like, you know, like water softens, but water is also very powerful. So you learn how to be firm in more skillful ways over time, over practice, and not punish ourselves or others. When we start to understand more the, the old ways of protecting ourselves, defending ourselves, from intrusion, from violation, from violence. And the far enemy, you know, the opposite of equanimity is grasping, clinging, attachment, or anger, aversion, pushing away, denial, fear. That the, the reactive mind is a good field of study. And it too we can appreciate in those, that same time of travel um, in India, Burma, Thailand. After that, Chandra and I went to live in, in Sri Lanka for about seven months. And we ended up in the hill station of Kandy, in the hill province 
late in an evening from the train. And I was carrying her in a backpack and two duffel bags, you know, with all the stuffs. And the, the, the taxi took us around to all the guest houses. And they were all filled. And then I said, okay, let's, let's try the Queen's Hotel or the Swiss Hotel, the two fancy hotels. They were filled. And he started to drive out of Candy and pulled in at this place called the Gem Inn. And they were filled. And then, you know, tired, we were both tired <coughs> and hungry. And I just had to get out of the car for a moment. It was a taxi guy who was asking um, people if there was room. And took Chandra out for fresh air. And then the proprietors were looking now from their window upstairs. And they saw us. And they said, oh, actually we do have a room. And we went in and we were fed and, ba- you know, given a bathroom to bathe in and went to sleep. And when we woke up, came out of the room, these proprietors were sleeping on their floor in the other room. So we became fast friends. They had three sons and they took on Chandra as a daughter and, you know, me as like an older, like an uncle or older brother or whatever. Um, and the, and, the, and the, they would never take money for staying with them. And we had a guest room and had to really be forceful to go with them to the market, you know, and, and at least share and buy the food. That's how close we were. So months went by, you know, and we'd do different things. On the edge of the jungle, it was, that, at that time, was exciting to live, you know. Out of Candy, and Candy was a simpler town in those days, and the Temple of the Tooth, where it said they have a, a tooth relic of the Buddha, and the, um, the temple elephant, an elephant parade they had in, in August with 120, you know, caprissoned uh, um, elephants and dancers. Uh, exciting. So one day, it was just a normal day after we kind of settled in there, uh, Chandra was playing with some of the boys of our friends, a little outside on the jungle side of the, the compound. She came running in. She said, Daddy, Daddy, there's a mad elephant. You know, and I thought, oh, this is like a mud pie mirroring opportunity. <laughs> you know, so in a really creative, intelligent imagination, I started to play along. Oh, wow, Chandra. You know, like, why is the elephant mad? And just about that time, it's, you heard this crackling, crashing, coming out of the jungle, and all this yelling, you know, and I quickly put her into a safe place, and I ran up on the road, and there's this raging elephant coming down the road, um, out of the jungle, with a, like a 30, 40 foot chain still on its legs, and 30 or 40 people trying to grab the chain and wrap it around big trees, even like huge um, jackfruit trees, it just sliced right through it, just pull all the people onto the road. And it was, it was just tearing through. You could feel the heat of its, of its rage. And I just watched it. I just you know, stood aside. I watched it get really near the main road um, that comes out of Candy and down toward the Mahaveli River. And finally, just at the last moment, the Mahout, who grows up, with and is the best friend to the elephant, finally, out of breath, catches up, you know, and, and gets the attention of the raging elephant. And this is his only friend, you know, only person that he really, that the elephant trusts. And got him to start simmering down and cooling at the, you know, place and moment of, could have been really disastrous. And this is what we learned. When the, the temple elephant was often hired out, you know, um, the temple would be given a lot of dana for to use the elephant, and they were constructing something in the forest, uh, uh, a guest house, something like that. And the general pattern was about eleven o'clock every morning. The mahout would take the temple elephant down to the Mahaveli River for its bath. And for its, you know, two or three hundred kilos of vegetation for its lunch. But the, the boss had been under pressure 
from, you know, who he was being paid by to build this building. So he started, you know, ordering the mahout to keep working the temple elephant, you know, for up to 12 o'clock and, you know, passed it. And like the third day of this, it was 12.30. And the elephant said, no, I'm not going to do this. And tore down two weeks of work and pulled the chain, you know, out of the stake, the stake out of the ground with the chain and just, you know, just destructively pushed over this truck, not harming anybody, but just started going, leaving, you know. And when the Mahout finally caught up with him, there was a re-engagement of trust because, of course, that rage was a, a cry for connection, a cry to re-establish broken trust, betrayal, um, cry for help. And the Mahout understood that, and the elephants, you know, elephants are very intelligent. He knew it wasn't the Mahout's fault, which is why he was able to start calming them down. And uh, took him, you know, took him for his bath. In fact, every day after that, he, he was let off at 10.30 in the morning, <laughs> given an extra hour to bathe and eat. You know, feel that image. We know that image. We've all been hurt or betrayed in some way, violated in some way. And there's causes, good causes and conditions for that kind of rage. And understanding that it's a cry for reconnection, for reestablishing friendship, friendship of metta and the care of trust and so forth. And be allowed the joy of bathing in the Mahaveli, the cool waters of the Mahaveli River and so forth, eating. We work with these lokadamas, you know, the way of the world, pain and pleasure, praise and blame, gain and loss, honor and dishonor, in, in increments. You can't all of a sudden just say, okay, it's the way of the world. You know, it's a good phrase to use sometimes when we come up against it because when we're feeling pleasure or, or praise or honor or gain, the tendency is to keep it. And we actually, there's a, there's a tension, there's a fear in grasping on to all those pleasant states. And we feel them all the more, and they are all the more transformative of our personality and lead more toward the transcendence when we're not attached to the pleasure, the gain, the praise, and the honor. And likewise, with, with the difficult states, the pain and the blame and the loss and the dishonor, you know, to to react to them negatively, you know, with anger, denial, or so forth, also keeps us knotted, you know, entangled, hard to differentiate, you know, uh, the cause and condition way of the world from what we think we want and how we think we can control our lives or experience outside. We become forgetful. When we're attached to things, we can't see the realities. We don't, we're out of our body. We don't really know seeing as seen. We're caught in the object of seeing or identified with a seer rather than just knowing the, the phenomena, the reality of seeing because of conditions, light, eye sensitivity, seeing consciousness, sound vibration, ear sensitivity, hearing consciousness, body consciousness, thinking consciousness, and so forth. So incrementally, you know, and because of the Dhamma intelligence itself, there's these varying degrees of, you know, the simple defenses, the stronger ones, and these old karmic knots or Dhamma pain that come up with overwhelming at times, edge of overwhelming grief, rage, anger, sorrow, longing, desire. Incrementally, we start to understand. We go, you know, from we swing with attachment to the pleasure and anger, the um, pain and so forth, praise and blame, go back and forth, and then we take a step back because we have this practice. We have this Brahma Vihara intelligence or 
you know, mindful intelligence that has nothing to do with the discursive mind. So we start making a little space. We befriend the, the, the raging elephant in us. You know, and, we, and we are our own best friend. We're the mahout for that embodied rage, our fear, our grief. Incrementally, we just learn how to step back sometimes and not feel you know, that we can never get out of that embodied pain, whatever it is. <coughs> it's a profound kind of um, patience that we learn, too. The Buddha said there's no difference between metta and patience. Patience is learning to accept the way things are moment to moment. You know, not roll over and not, not act on what's happening, but not deny. In other words, accept by knowing the reality that this is pain and there's a potential to react, to push it away, that this is pleasure and there's the potential to act, to attach, to cling to it. And we just start knowing these different mind states and which one starts to feel more free, more liberating more towards happiness, and which one starts to feel more toward darkness and entanglement, confusion, mental, physical briars. Patience is a powerful parami. Parami is one of the uh, spiritual virtues, you know, along with everything else we've been practicing and you've been hearing, metta, equanimity, wisdom, and... uh, Resolution, energy, which we'll talk about in a moment. So the trust that I saw and felt, the faith that I saw and felt when the first time in this remote part of Burma, it evoked a memory of um, a year in Japan when we went my mom and sister and I went by boat from Honolulu to Japan. My dad was working there for a year, and I went to uh, uh, first grade there. And there's a lot of first, actually. First train ride, first snow, first ho- horse ride. And the first time in this culture, and Japan also, its own brand of, um, of Buddhism, many times many types, you know, most prominently and closest to our practice in some forms of Zen. So I remember the first time I witnessed an emotion or emotions that I didn't understand. And we went to the Kamakura Buddha, which looks, I think this is a copy of the Kamakura Buddha. And uh, I, I remember it so well, you know, I was wearing a kimono, my sister was, you know, we were dressed for the culture. And I came, it's a huge one, larger, much larger than this build, building. And there it sat, you know. And what I witnessed was people's respect, people's reverence, people's awe. They were putting flowers, like maybe marigolds. I remember they were yellow and orange. And perhaps incense seemed to recall the smoke of incense that I'd never seen before. So I myself was in, a, in awe of, of, of their reverence. I, I didn't understand it. I didn't know that it was reverence. I didn't know it was why the um, expression of, of respect and honoring this. And then we went around behind it and walked inside of it. And, you know, it's a kind of a tourist attraction as well. You walk up these steps. So the other thing that I noticed, there's nothing in it. I remember asking my parents, well, where's its stomach and where's its heart and where's its brain? It was just all empty. So people were honoring this, this form, this image, you know, with all their devotion and, and faith. I didn't understand why, since there was nothing in it. But, you know, a couple of decades later in, in Burma, I began to understand when I saw people's devotion and faith and respect for the Dhamma, which essentially te- teaches the same thing. 
You know, there's no solid um, egocentric abiding self. It's just phenomena appearing and disappearing moment to moment. And this capacity to, you know, bring out of our, out of this phenomena, out of our personality, these amazing qualities like the four Brahma Viharas and the wisdom of insight that understands this nature of you know, emptiness of any, anything independent and separate from everything else. This self-possessive sense of I and self. In the beginning, our, our faith might be tender and we're influenced to come here by something we read, something we feel inside, and something we hear. And then gradually we might start to a, a practice, take in the teachings. And some of our experience begins to be um, confirmed, you know, mirrored, verified from our own, our own direct experience. And so the faith increases and heads toward this greater and greater affirmation you know, of confidence and then this deep, extraordinary kind of trust, you know, un- unshakable kind of faith where we know that there's a path in this short life. You know, how, many, how, many ever, how many breaths we might have in this life. There's, a, there's, there's some deeper meaning for being here. And we, we begin to feel that by just seeing what's real about this body and the knowing mind. <coughs> My, our teacher, Upandita, said, all of our practice, all of our spiritual practice is the awakening and sustaining of faith. You know, meaning what I just said. It, it brings us to the Zafu. And it's, it's tender and young and iffy. It can go to blind faith, which is ever, never useful. Or it can lead us to that wise effort and energy to put in, to being present, to being mindful and equanimous and letting the mind grow in its stillness, unification of mind-body, samadhi, and eventuate in insight, intuitive flashes, illuminations. Insight has nothing to do with the thinking, discursive mind. It's like turning on a light in a dark room or lighting a candle in a really dark cave. It illumines the walls of everything. It's just a sudden, like lightning flash, indisputable knowing, you know, of whatever is being experienced in that moment. We learn to trust this Dhamma intelligence. By now, um, there's periods of time where you feel the practice carrying you. You feel in the current of the Dhamma that the practice is doing itself. The Dhamma is doing the work. Sometimes you feel it really physically, uh, what Upandita often called Dhamma massage. You start feeling from inside the body all these pressures and opening and compression and expansion and, you know, start feeling really kind of strange and body contorting. You open your eyes, you know, wondering what's going on. That's the Dhamma working itself out on the physical level and emotional level, you know, emotionally massaged as well. And moments of great stillness, like where we rest between sights and sounds, sensations and thought formations dropping deeper into that stillness and deeper into moments of the glow uh, of, of a joy not dependent, a Dhamma joy, Dhamma pleasure, as Upandita would call them, not dependent on the senses or what we know or don't know. This, that type of joy I was talking about in the last talk or happiness, contentment. And the silence, you know, the silence doesn't mean there's not thoughts. A very transformative, brief teaching from one of the interviews with Upandita in a long retreat, he said side by side with the discursive mind, 
you know, but pancha mind is this development of samadhi and wisdom, you know, or brahma viharas and wisdom. Side by side. So we might think, oh, we're kind of losing ground, slipping down the hill. Each time we find ourselves lost in some drama, some obsession, some memory, some planning, uh, some figuring out, and so forth. All the things that the mind tries to do. But one moment of presence, pre-verbal presence with any Brahma-vihara, our mindful, mindfulness, is more powerful than 10,000 discursive moments. And I just made that number up, but I, it's probably more than that, you know? I felt, we've, we have felt the effect of that because our practice is no different than yours. You know? It's karmic knots or dhamma pain and thinking and feeling hurt and betrayed and the rage and all that. For 40 years, we've been doing the same work. And, but we have felt these powerful periods of silence and the, the effect that one moment can have in illumination and release little by little, incrementally of the holding on. And learn that the holding on just blinds us from being present, from resting in this profound Brahma Viharas or resting in the light of knowing, wisdom, of seeing. It, it doesn't matter what form you practice. As I said, it was many hundreds of years later that the more formulaic practice of visualization, conceptual imagination, and the phrases were used as tools or, or handles to mirror, create the space and concentration to mirror and elicit uh, a single moment of metta, and then another, and then a few, and so forth. So, you know, probably was useful in the culture at that time, but you don't find it anywhere in the earliest Pali text, teachings of the Buddha. You just find the abiding, you know, calling up the metta, abiding. And abiding also means radiating. It's something you do. This part of the abiding. And then the karuna, and then the mudita, and then the upeka. So it's, you, 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 know, you experiment and see what you need and know that you can do one or the other or some combination. There's this huge amount of flexibility. In terms of the aim you know, of, of our practice, you know, ultimately liberation, the Brahma Viharas developed and becoming the stepping stones toward liberation, toward transcendence, it's very similar to in what's now called the Polynesian wayfinding. A group of, of my childhood friends and surfing friends and high school or university friends, about the same time I started with this practice in the early 70s, be, began to distrust the anthropologists who were saying Polynesian people didn't have the intelligence to be sailing and inhabiting this vast, vast biggest nation on the planet of the Pacific for thousands of years. So this group of friends, some at the university and one a great artist, Hawaiian artist, and um, <coughs> others just water men and women who wanted to know, uh, rebuilt uh, out of legend and chants and so forth um, and, and petroglyphs a double hull sailing canoe that you use without any instrument any compass or sextant or GPS you learn to sail and this is how you learn the, the teacher they found in Micronesia you know, was teaching uh, my friend Nainoa you know, he became the first navigator, Hawaiian navigator, in 600 years to re relearn. And, and this teacher, Mao, said the, you know, the way of sailing, which is very much the way of our practice, is to keep, well, they were standing on, on the point of a 
southwest Honolulu, near where our house was. And they were looking out toward Tahiti. And Mao said, Nainoa, can you see Tahiti? And it's 3,000 kilometers over the curve of the earth. But he closed his eyes and said, I can see it in my mind. And Mao, his master navigator, said, good, keep the vision of the island in mind and you won't lose your way. And then it's attending to what we call the turbulent systems, basically known through the six senses. You know, tonight, we're being visited by a turbulent system. We can call weather turbulent system, whether it's sunny and nice or windy and rainy. You know, the conditions are changing all the time. But everywhere around the planet is this constant movement of wind and rain and clouds and heat, moisture and so forth. It's the same on the ocean. And, and so attending to the moment was what's also called in this practice six-limbed equanimity. Where you, you learn to tune in without projection to the nature of light and sound and smell and taste and sensation through the body, the feeling the currents of the sea through the body and the canoe and in, 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 intuitively, you know, through what they co considered their center called the pico. And that's where you keep the vision in mind. And then by tuning in to nature, currents, wind currents and air currents and water currents and migration of fish and birds and uh, clouds and just that stillness and tuning in it said you pull the island, you pull Tahiti out of the sea. You know, we pull our practice to us. And that's more what it's like than going after anything. You, know, you miss the island if you don't have that combination of vision and attunement to the senses. Well, learning all this and staying in touch over the you know, last whatever, 35, 40 years, um, you know, side by side, I felt kind of the uh, similarity and inspiration from what they were doing. So now they uh, just started a, a four-year circumnavigation of the planet. It's become a huge journey of um, learning about the planet and, uh, and peace, you know, and care, compassion, loving-kindness, visiting all these places around the world. So we can think of ourselves as wayfinders, you know, in that way. We can have a vision, you know, when we hear or have a taste of the Brahma Viharas or an insight liberation moment. But then it's really the refined, incremental, moment-by-moment, moment, careful attention, you know, rest. We can exert whatever energy we have, you know. No, we can think of it as wise effort. Everything noble, you know, takes this courageous energy. As Michelle was saying, the definition of virya. And put out whatever energy we have and act from a place of, of care and non-attachment, the way we would care for anything precious to us but also knowing that clinging or attachment pushes people away, that the greatest intimacy comes out of this non-attachment, this equanimity, where we're not judging and assessing and measuring ourselves or others. You know, that's the opposite of equanimity. <clears throat> and, we, and within this exertion of courageous energy and um, an intention to act from care and non-attachment, recognize our limit, limitations and capabilities. They change every day. They change every practice session. In the midst of a walking or a sitting, they might change. Practice with perseverance and patience, resolve. Checking in our motivation, because it changes from one of that relaxed attunement, you know, and just keeping the vision in mind to stressing 
pushing or pulling. So continually checking in with our, our intention, our volition, our motivation. And then, and then, you know, those, those qualities of knowing our effort, our, our courage, putting the energy out, and tuning in to uh, the motivation, care, compassion, or attachment. And the last part that really defines, perhaps most deeply, equanimity is letting go all attachment, all expectation to results. And this is called the anatta element, the understanding in- incrementally. And first, you know, we, we, th- we think and identify and we have this sense of a solid self. But incrementally it lightens up, begins to, we start to see moments where something happened and it seemed to have nothing to do with what we identify as ourselves. You know, so letting go, expectation, letting go, clinging to the results of our actions is the most you know, powerful way of being present and letting something manifest, letting the flower bloom out of the garden. You know, rather than putting too much water or too much compost or digging it up to see, you know, how it's coming and so forth. But it's profound, you know, it's difficult to understand. How, how do we do things, you know, without expecting results? Well, we just keep doing them. That's how. The results might not be what we want or might not be, you know, might not find the island the first time. Right? But then it's, just, it's back again to the moment. And, and seeing how if we're attached to results, we suffer. One way or another, we'll suffer with more wanting or more aversion and fear. And without attachment, we just see clearly what's happening, reconnect with our motivation, care, non-attachment, and again, cultivate the energy and, and do. That's, um, this is equanimity and how it is as a transmission is it infuses our our nature um, with the sense of a safe harbor, or perhaps several safe harbors, where we feel this peace and serenity of non-attachment. The, again, moments of it, you know. So that's what the gift to ourselves and the moments of being free of the bounds of attachment and anger. For others, we become a beacon of light. You know, in moments of great joy or in moments of crisis, if we're, if we're there in a serene way, we're very reassuring. You know, we put out this energy in others that's reassuring, might bring them down from uh, their clinging to, you know, too high. If you're too high, you're going to fall. Or you might bring them up if they're down in despair and depressed, disappointed, just by that presence of this equanimity, which, unlike its near enemy, is sensitive, caring, attuned, and working with all the other Brahma-viharas together, in play, like music, just the right one at the right time, embraced by this peace of equanimity. And to end, it's a story of um, short story of my my mom leaving this life. Um, one day, I got a, a call um, in this place on the Andaman Sea, the place I was um, from the time of the tsunami, and a place I still go to. From Michelle, and she said, "I think you should come home now." You know, and a couple of years before, we had moved my mom into the house. So at first, Chandra and then other caretakers could uh, be with her because that's how she wanted to go. So I came home, and uh, there was you know 36 hours, and came down to the last two and a half hours, and all her closest friends were around her. You know her loved ones, Chandra and myself and Michelle and, and, and other, other, all her best friends were 
were us and our best friends because she outlived everyone else. She was 97. And so she felt really at peace and really comfortable. Michelle had said, you know, that I was coming. So she waited. And um, in the last couple hours, it was like this meditation. We were holding hands and had eye contact. She couldn't talk. You know, she tried to a few times, but she couldn't. Her eyes remained, you know, kind of locked in a meditative um, scene, relationship, in the hands, and a sensing relationship. You know, so a lot was going on. You know, Michelle uh, sometimes on the phone with our friend and doctor and student, doctor of my mom. You know, saying what was going on, and some people suggested that she be medicated for the pain, and. Our friend, the doctor, said, no, your mom can do it. You know, she can do it. She wouldn't want to be medicated. You know, she wants to die awake. And, and that's how it went, you know. It just went down to um, that, the last breath. And it was so incredibly still and peaceful. It was like a birth. You know, the room was just filled with light and it was a blessing. You know, just this infusion like of all the Brahma Viharas at once. It was a remarkable moment. Let's sit. Just feeling the the gratitude how each of us weaves this fabric that holds the universe together in all the ways of the world, the Lokadhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.